Church, if you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We were in 1 Peter chapter 3 last week, so just turn back a page or two and you'll find 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue in this series. While you're turning there this morning, uh, I just wanted to say um, just a word to the church this morning. Um, there are opportunities that God gives me as your pastor just every once in a while uh, just to give thanks for the immense privilege that God has given me of pastoring this church. And, and Friday was just one of those days for me. Uh, first of all, to see this room just filled with folks who were here uh, to celebrate the life of, of Leif Tall. What a wonderful man and a huge example to us uh, of what it looks like to en endure suffering and trials and do it with joy. But also just seeing so many of you that came and you brought food and you served behind the scenes and you set up tables and chairs and you loved on the family and you just, I just got this huge sense of, I don't know if I should call it pride, but I think I will just for right now, over a church that was loving a grieving family well during this time. And I would encourage you to continue that good work, but thank you for being the church that you are it's a privilege to be your pastor and and just to watch how you how you love folks so thank you for that church first peter chapter one today continuing in this series we began several weeks ago called two ways to live we're talking about how we might know the gospel better that we might be prepared to share the gospel better we we've said you you can't share what you don't know and so we want to know and the gospel on a deeper level that we might be able to be more faithful in, in being witnesses. Remember, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, uh, the question that remains is, will we be uh, equipped to witness well to the things of God found in, in Jesus Christ? And so as we began this series, we, we made this statement about the gospel that the gospel is at the core. It's God's story. Now, now, we're invited into it through faith in Jesus Christ, but, but the gospel is not ultimately about us. And if we, we start in the wrong place as far as sharing the gospel, then we'll probably end up in the wrong place. So we need to start with the idea and the truth that the gospel is at the core God's story. It's the story of our Creator King who is holy and perfect in all of his attributes and saw fit according to his goodwill and purpose to create all things. And by his word, he spoke into existence every created thing. And he also spoke us into existence. He, he brought into existence people like you and me, created in his image with the design of God that we would display his glory in all of his creation. As the pinnacle of his creation, men and women were created to display the glory of God in the world. But rather than fulfilling our design, we instead chose to rebel against God. And we committed sin against God, which is treason against our king. And we understand that that treason has only one rightful punishment, which is death. And that, that death means eternal separation from our loving God, our creator, and our king. But rather than 
inflicting that punishment upon us, God in his great mercy and grace chose to put that punishment upon his perfect son. That he who knew no sin of his own, Jesus Christ, that he became sin for us. He took the full burden of our sin upon himself at the cross so that through him, through his blood shed for us, we might become the righteousness of God. All of our rebellion against God in exchange for all of his righteousness. That's the great exchange of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel doesn't end with the cross. The cross is at the center of the gospel, but we can't talk about the cross without talking about the empty tomb. And I'm so thankful today that we've had something like an Easter service here this morning. Every Sunday ought to be Easter Sunday in the house of God because it is worthy for us to be reminded continually that we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. We used to sing that, didn't we? That's an old hymn. I serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. We are not following a dead God. That's what, one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. Muhammad is dead Buddha is dead. Every other religious figure that has, has ruled cults and other false religions in the world is dead. Jesus was dead, but he's not anymore. And that's what we celebrate. We are following a risen Christ, and we cannot share the gospel adequately without talking about the resurrection. There's a very real sense in which Everything in the Christian life hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To the point where the Apostle Paul wrote this, if Christ has not been raised, if the body of Jesus of Nazareth is still in a tomb somewhere outside of Jerusalem, then the Apostle Paul wrote and said, if that's the case, then we are the most pitiful people on the face of the planet. We're a wretched lot if we are following some dead dude who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. If the resurrection is not true, then everything else that we believe as Christians is suspect at best. Everything hinges on this. Either Jesus Christ rose from the dead or he did not. If he did, that means that has something to do with your life. Because the greatest enemy in your life is death. We talked about this last week. It's appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. The biggest day that's on the calendar of any of us in the future is the day that we will stand before this holy God, our Creator King, and have to give an account for our lives. And the only way we will be able to give an account that will be justified is if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If having known him and trusted him by faith, we are trusting him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is to give us right standing with God. And so today we come to this resurrection. We come to a reminder of that which sets the Christian faith apart from all other faiths. But as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, I need you to understand something about the context of these words before we read the scriptures this morning. Peter writes to a persecuted people. A people who had lost much. 
because of their professed faith in Jesus Christ. They had lost their homes. They had lost their livelihoods. Many of them were exiled by family and friends. They had given up much for the cause of Christ, but Peter wants to show them that it was all worth it. That any loss would be gained in the kingdom of God. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, if you're able to stand in the wor- honor of the word of God this morning, would you do so as we share these verses together? This is the word of God written for our instruction this morning, and it says... In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated together this morning. Father God, would you teach us this morning? I pray that you would guard the tongue of this pastor today that I may say nothing more than what you would desire and nothing less and as we look to the resurrected Christ today and we're reminded that we serve a risen Savior would you help us to see today that our only hope of eternal life our only hope of life with you after the grave is found in him and in him alone. Because Christ has been raised, we too can be. Help us to see these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talk about the resurrection of Jesus today. It's part of our understanding of of the gospel we want to speak about it in terms of his conclusive conquest that's the title of today's message that the resurrection is jesus proclaiming his victory over death and hell and the grave it is jesus christ proclaiming his victory over the greatest enemies that exist for mankind It's Jesus saying, I win, and you too can be a part of the victory celebration if you'll put your faith and trust in me. Again, as we think about what these words meant to the persecuted people to whom Peter was writing, Pastor Kent Hughes said this, he said, these words, they had a profound effect on Peter's first readers. They were a spiritually tired lot. Through the gospel, they had come to know God's favor, but for some time they had found life difficult. You might be able to relate in these days. But knowing their discouragement, Peter writes of their future salvation and fills them with fresh hope. 
I don't know what the circumstances of your life are like right now. These may be the best of times for you. They may be the worst of times for you. But regardless of where you find yourself circumstantially this morning, I want to encourage you to hear the truth of God's Word this morning and recognize that whether you're living in the best of times or whether you're living in the worst of times, there is a hope that is greater. And it's found in the resurrected Christ. So let's talk about today some of the results of the resurrection. What comes to us as the people of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we would not otherwise have? First of all, as a direct result of Christ's resurrection, we have a living hope. It's right there in the text before you, verse 3. We have a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now Peter could have just said, we have hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He could have even just said, we have a great hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But he said, we have a living hope. It's kind of an odd term if you think about it. Why would he say that we have a living hope? Well, we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. We have a living hope because we have a living Word, the revelation of God to us. We have a living hope because His Spirit is living within us. And this hope is the hope of eternal life. So it's it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a hope that's going to dry up one day. It's a hope that's going to abound more and more and more as we grow in Christ and as we understand more about the kingdom of God. Our hope will only increase. It is a living, growing, thriving hope. It's a living hope. First of all, this living hope reminds us that our Creator is worthy of commendation. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Addressing a persecuted people, he starts by calling them to praise. It seems counterintuitive. It seems strange to call a people who have lost so much because of their faith in Jesus to praise God from the beginning. Perhaps you would think, yeah, let's get around to praising God, but let's, let's, let's comfort folks first. Let's try to explain maybe what God is trying to do in their persecution first. No, Peter from the very beginning says, no, God is deserving of our praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He deserves our worship. And church, I believe we have worshipped him well this morning. It's been wonderful to sing of him this morning. We begin by understanding that our living hope is bound up in this truth that we have a creator who is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of being commended to a lost and dying world. Not not just praised in these walls, but praised in our world. As we were created to be those who would display His glory in the world, so in Christ we can take up that mantle once again. We can bear that banner once more as we praise Him and say our Creator is worthy of praise. But this living hope also reminds us, it also reminds us that we bore a corruption that was worthy of condemnation. Again, look back at the text, verse 3. He said this salvation is according to His great mercy. 
Now, what is mercy? Mercy is when I don't get a punishment that I deserve. Our kids love mercy talk at the house. When you know you've done something wrong, but mom and dad are going to show mercy and you're not going to get the punishment that you justly deserve. That's what mercy is. Now, grace is grace is when I get a prize that I don't deserve. But mercy is when I don't get a punishment that I do deserve. And why do we need the mercy of God? Because we deserve the punishment. Because of our rebellious, sinful treason against our holy God and creator, we deserve the punishment of death and hell for eternity. You say, that sounds a little extreme, Pastor. Not if you understand the holiness of God. If you understand the holiness of God, you understand very clearly that even one sin against him is enough for our eternal condemnation. And that the only way that we could find remedy to our issue, and our issue is that one day we will stand before a holy God and have to give an account for our lives, and the only way that we have any hope in that moment is if somebody does something for us that we can't do for ourselves, and that somebody is Jesus Christ. So while our corruption is worthy of condemnation, he took that condemnation upon himself when he died at the cross for us. But we also recognize that his resurrection, it gives us confirmation. It confirms the promises of God to us. It would have been one thing for God to promise us eternal life, but he sealed it with the resurrection. He sealed it by saying, look at Jesus. In the same way that Jesus defeated death, so you too can defeat death through faith in him. Jesus was the first fruits of those who are born again, the Bible says. He was the first one to pave the way toward new life after death, eternal life with God forever. He was the first one, and we come along with him through faith trusting him not as a one-time thing but as a lifestyle a life given over to him because he gave his life for us and so there's a connection here that i don't want you to miss there's a connection between suffering and hope this is so important that you understand this because this is what will help you to understand the sufferings of your own life if you belong to Christ. You see, I believe that God never wastes one ounce of the suffering that happens in the lives of his children. Now we could go to a place of saying, why does God allow suffering in the lives of his children? If he's all-powerful, why does he allow these kinds of things? Why does he allow cancer to exist in Christians? Why does he allow us to lose our jobs and our kids to rebel? Why, why does he allow all these sufferings in, in our lives? I think Romans 5 helps us to understand some of that. Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings. The world says, that's nuts. Who rejoices in suffering? We're just a bunch of crazy Christians, it's true. We, because we know, here's why we rejoice. Because we know that God is producing something in our suffering. God is doing something in our suffering that cannot be accomplished in any other way. You want to see what that's like? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
He was doing something in the suffering of Christ at the cross that could not happen in any other way. Remember what Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, if there be any other way, let's go to plan B. The cross is not going to be a fun day. But what did he say afterward? Not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I'm going to do what has been your eternal plan for the salvation of many. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, a pressing on, a steadfastness, and endurance produces character. The character of Christ is birthed in us, and this character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us. It does not come up short because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So notice the connection between suffering and hope. And if you belong to Jesus Christ today, understand that what God is doing in your suffering is He is producing hope in you. He is shoring up your hope. You see, apart from Christ, suffering is hopeless. Apart from Christ, suffering leaves me in the pit. But in Christ, when I can begin to understand that it was through the suffering of my Savior that my salvation was purchased, then I can begin to understand perhaps God is doing a similar work in me, that he is using my suffering to teach me to endure like Christ endured, to have a character like Christ has, and to cling to the hope of glory, that living hope who is Jesus himself. So as a direct result of Christ's resurrection, we have a living hope. We also, in verse 4, find that we have a lasting inheritance. We have a lasting inheritance. And notice he piles up the adjectives here. An inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's almost as if he has to say what it's not because he can't quite fully describe what it is. And so we see... These three descriptors, first of all, lasting inheritance, first of all, it's imperishable, meaning it cannot be destroyed. It's indestructible. Compare this with any inheritance that you might think of having in this life. Compare it to anything that you might hope of inheriting in this life, and you understand whatever we might inherit in this life be it houses or lands, properties, all of those things are destructible. We live in a world that is fading and falling apart all over the place. But he says, we have an inheritance in Christ that is indestructible. Why? Because it's kept by the power of God, the indestructible one. It is guarded for us, he says in verse 5. It's imperishable. Secondly, it's undefiled, meaning literally it cannot be diluted. It also cannot be polluted. It is pure, just as God is pure. This inheritance that is awaiting us and that we can partake in in the here and now through faith in Christ, this inheritance is undefiled. It is kept in the holiness of God. So when God says to us, be holy as I am holy, it's not some cruel prank. It's really the promise of God that he's going to make you holy as he is holy. He is going to prepare you to take part in this undiluted inheritance. And finally, it is unfading. It cannot be diminished. Think about this for a moment. 
We live in a world where one of the laws of this world is the law of diminishing returns. So tomorrow morning, if you wake up and you go to do what is one of my most hated activities in life, you go on the hunt for a new car. Now, I've actually never bought one new car in my life, and I will never do it again. I will buy gently used from now until I die unless someone happens to give me something. But the idea is whatever you do, you go onto that car lot and you find that beautiful automobile, the vehicle of your dreams. Do you know what happens the moment you drive it off the lot? You might as well have written a check for several thousand dollars and handed it to the person that you met in the drive-thru at Dairy Queen five minutes later. Because you've, you've automatically, automatically, that which you just paid your hard-earned money for is now automatically worth less than what you paid for it. The law of diminishing returns. Everything in our world is fading and diminishing and falling apart. Our bodies are falling apart. The older I get, the more I see it. I love what one of our men said. He said, you'll know you've gotten old when you go to bed feeling fine, and you wake up in the morning and you realize you hurt yourself while you were sleeping. That's a great word, isn't it? And I have experienced that. I, I, you want to think, man, I really worked hard yesterday. I didn't do anything yesterday, but somehow in the night, this fading, falling apart body. Let me just say this to us. Anything that we place our faith and hope and trust in in this fading world is fading itself. Hear me, if you are putting your hope in your job, one day that job will no longer be there for you. Married people in the room, hear me clearly. If you're tying all your hopes up in your spouse or single people that are hoping to be married one day, if you are tying all of your hopes up in your future spouse, if you're buying into that Jerry Maguire lie of that other person to complete you, let me help you to understand very clearly they will not, they were never intended to. And worst case scenario, you will make them into an idol that you worship and here's what happens when you make another person an idol. You ultimately set them on a shelf of destruction. Because when they don't measure up to the worship that you have given to them, you will begin to hate that which you once worshipped. I just need you to understand that this morning. Whenever you put your hope in something in this world, parents, if you're putting all your hopes into your kids, again, you are, you are setting them up for a failure. Unless our hope is grounded in Christ, the eternal Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to guarantee us eternal life, unless your hope is grounded in Christ, then wherever it is, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the law of diminishing returns applies to everything in this world. But it doesn't apply to Him. It doesn't apply to Him because He is the eternal God. And He is guarding an imperishable, undefiled, and fading inheritance for you. Where is your hope? Ephesians 1, in Him, in Christ, 
We have obtained an inheritance. I love the fact that he's not talking about a future reality here. He's saying there's a sense in which this is done. We've obtained an inheritance. It's already ours in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And once again, the inheritance reminds us of God's design for us. He intended us to be displayers of his glory. So this resurrection, it gives us a living hope. It gives us a lasting inheritance. And finally this morning, this resurrection reminds us that we have a longed for salvation. Look at verse 5. I know for some strange reason it says verse 18. Just ignore that. That's an error by your pastor. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There, there are three tenses in which salvation is spoken of in the, in the scriptures. Sometimes salvation is talked about as a past reality, sometimes as a present reality, and sometimes as a future reality. And all three come together to give us the full picture of what salvation in Jesus Christ looks like. So sometimes the Bible speaks about us having been saved. A done deal that's already completed. It reminds us of what Jesus said at the cross. In his final words, he said, it is finished. So there's a real sense here in which there's nothing that we need to add to the picture of salvation that God has laid out for us. It's already done. It was done when Jesus poured out his blood on the cross for you. You were saved in that moment. But there's also a sense scripturally in which the Bible talks about us being saved. It's a present reality that's continuing to be borne out in our lives. We talk about this process in, in the scriptures called sanctification, the process from, by which God makes us to be more like Jesus. We are being saved through our faith in Christ. We are becoming more like Christ as we grow in our faith in him. There's a sense in which we are being saved as we exercise our faith. But there's also what we find here in verse 5. I love these pictures of the fact that salvation also has a future aspect we will be saved can you see the future aspect here a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time now we don't know when the last time is we don't know when god will split wide the heavens and gather all of his children unto himself in that eternal home we don't know when that day is coming that we will stand before the judgment seat of christ we don't know that day just yet but we do know that day is coming and in the meantime we know these things about this longed for salvation first of all we know that our salvation is secured by god now, I know that in many pulpits across the land today, there will be those that would deny this reality that we are secure in Christ, that those who have trusted in Christ are secure. Now, hear me clearly. I am not preaching before you some kind of once saved, always saved deal where you just pray a prayer, get dunked in the baptistry, and then go live your life however you want to the rest of your days. That is not the salvation that Jesus secures. That's religious mumbo-jumbo and garbage that will not guarantee you a place in heaven. I'm talking about when you give your life over to Jesus Christ and you 
understand rightly that he is the Lord and Savior of your life. You enter into that saving relationship with him that begins when you trust Christ and it brings you on into that day when you'll stand before him face to face. A life lived for Jesus is secured by the hand of God. And what I want you to understand this morning, believer, is you are not secured by your good works any more than you were saved by your good works. By the way, you had no good works. Your good works were filthy rags before a holy God. If you were not saved by anything that you did, then you need not be secured by anything that you did. And so Jesus said to his followers, he said, I will not lose one that the Father has given to me. What did you do in that picture? Nada. Jesus said, I will not lose one that the Father has given to me. The Father, by His grace, has rescued a people by the blood of His Son poured out at the cross. And there's nothing that you did to earn this great salvation, so there's nothing that you could do to lose this great salvation. If you belong to Him, that's an eternal deal. I read an article this week that was so disturbing. It was talking about a trend of what they're calling Second time around adoptions. I don't know if any of you saw this or not. It was so heartbreaking. That somewhere between 1 and 5% of children that are adopted, and it seems to be an increasing thing, between 1 and 5% of children that are adopted at some point in their journey have to be adopted again because the first family decides they don't want to continue in that relationship. Man, I'm so thankful that our God does not respond in that way. I'm so thankful that when he adopts us into his family and we get that new name and we get that new identity and we get that new heavenly home and we we get all the glories of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that there's never going to be a day that we have to wonder, is he going to give up on us? Am I going to have to look for some other source of hope? Am I, am I going to have to find my identity somewhere else? No, you're never going to have to worry about those things because we are secured by the power of Almighty God. Secondly, we're reminded that our salvation is set up by God. Notice the word he says there, a salvation that is ready. There's nothing left to be done. There's nothing left to be done some of us are are longing for words that are going to be said this thursday and the words are dinner's ready man we're looking forward to that my mouth can start watering right now thinking about turkey and all those things that are coming on thursday i mean i can go there right now we're going to be long in fact in my in my family's home we have some really weird habit now on thanksgiving we eat at like 2 30 Who does that? I mean, I want to talk with my mom about this, but I don't really want to be an offense to her. But, I mean, who eats at 2.30? I mean, let's let's eat at noon or let's eat at 6 or 5. I mean, what in the world is 2.30? So you're like, okay, so what do I do? I eat no breakfast and I'm starving. I mean, what do I do with this? But we're longing for that moment when somebody's going to say, dinner's ready. Understand, church, there is nothing left to be done in terms of the banquet that God has for his people. It's done. 
When Jesus said, it is finished, understand what he was saying was, dinner's ready. The only thing left is for us to be seated at the banquet table. And that's what we're longing for. There's nothing you have to add to this picture. No dish you have to bring. No dishes you have to wash. It's simply the Creator King welcoming you as His child through faith in Jesus Christ to come and draw near to His table. This was made possible through the resurrection of Jesus. And finally, we're reminded that our salvation must be set forth by God. It's kept by His power. It's ready. But it's also yet to be revealed. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so through all throughout the New Testament, there's this constant talk uh, about the second coming of Christ, about His appearing. It talks about those who have loved and longed for His appearing, that we are looking forward to the day when Jesus will return. No more baby in the manger, but King on the throne, Jesus. We're, we're looking forward to that day. Our hope is found in that day. We don't want to expend our lives trusting in things that won't outlast this life. We want to find our hope firmly grounded in Him. Knowing that there's a coming day when our salvation will be set forth by God. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that good? No matter what you're suffering right now, it is nothing in comparison with what your God has waiting on the table. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You see, when he splits wide the heavens and reveals himself in all of his glory, he is also going to be revealing those who are his. If you belong to him, understand this. You're going to be a part of the revelation. You're going to be a part of the appearing. You're going to be a further demonstration of the glory of God as he puts on display those that were rescued by his grace and for his glory. You will stand forever belonging to him as a trophy of his triumph. It's a glorious thing, and the purpose for which he created you to display his glory will be displayed in your life forevermore. As we close this morning, let me just give you three quick ramifications of the resurrection. Like, what do we do this on a practical level? What does the re resurrection mean for us day to day? Let me just give you three. I could probably give you 30, but let me give you three for today to take home and to think about. First of all, the resurrection means that Jesus' triumph over death is the believer's triumph over death. Like, that changes the way you live if you get this. That will change the way that you live if you take hold of this, my faith. If you understand that Jesus rising from the dead means that death has no power over you if you're found in Christ. If you're trusting Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself, then there is nothing. And if death has no power of you, then what does? Only God himself. There's nothing to fear. 
nothing to get wrapped up in, nothing to worry about. When you know that Jesus' triumph is your triumph, it changes the way you view the days you have remaining in this life. Secondly, the resurrection reminds us that we can trust Jesus in the midst of our trials. This is so huge. The resurrection means we can trust Jesus in the midst of our trials. So when we get that diagnosis, when we get the pink slip, when our kids have gone AWOL, when we're struggling with depression, even when we begin to have doubts about our faith, we can trust Him because He who promised you is faithful. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's already prepared for you a heavenly home. And however long he allows you to continue in this life is going to be a blink compared to the eternity that he has awaiting for you. So you can trust him. Whatever this life brings, however difficult it might be, see your suffering, yes, in light of the cross of Christ, that he suffered in your place, but even more so, see your suffering in light of his resurrection. That suffering isn't the end. That suffering is the pathway to glory. That suffering is the means by which God creates the character of Christ in you. Suffering is the means by which he increases your hope. Suffering is the means by which he takes our eyes off the things of this world and puts them on him where our hope can remain secure. We can trust him in the midst of our trials. And finally this morning, the resurrection reminds us simply that our greatest treasure is not in this life. So if I ask you today, what's your greatest treasure? What do you love more than anything? What consumes your thoughts and your dreams? If it's anything less than Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection, it's subject to the law of diminishing returns. It will be disappointing to you in the end. Please understand this morning, if all your hope is firmly planted in your family, you will be disappointed. And that's not saying anything bad about your family. There are some lovely families in this room. But they can't do for you what Jesus can do for you. If all your hope and all your dreams are firmly planted in your occupation, you will be sorely disappointed. If all your hope and all your dreams are firmly planted in your education and your ability, your skill set, you will find yourself disappointed. The only place 
where hope can be secure and not subject to the law of diminishing returns that rules over this sin-broken world is when our hope is kept in heaven for us by this creator God who saw fit to rescue rebels like us through the blood of his son poured out at the cross. And the same one who died on the cross for us rose from the dead so that we could have resurrection life, that our hope could be firmly planted in him. It's all about him. And if it sounds self-centered for God to say it's all about me, you're beginning to get the right picture. That's how it must be. And so let me leave you with a word from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul spends one of the longest chapters in the entire New Testament just talking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection from beginning to end and at the end the last word that he has to say is he's been talking for 58 verses about the resurrection of jesus christ and what that means for us that we will be raised as well he he ends it this way but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so church, the result of the resurrection is this. God is so worthy of our gratitude. The victory that He won has been offered freely to us through the pathways of repentance and faith that he has set up. We are the beloved of God. By the way, that'll change you if you start to get a hold of that one. And because we're the beloved of God, we can be steadfast in the midst of trials. We can be immovable when our world is falling apart, not because we don't care but because we know he cares for us. And always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain because he has in store for us something so much greater than we could possibly ask or think.